Welcome to the ninth episode of our Think Differently Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School. This series features authors from the current volume of the CTTL's internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply, which has been distributed to over 10,000 teachers, school leaders, and policymakers worldwide. Today, I'm joined by English teacher Andrew Seidman, an orchestrator of many creative endeavors here at St. Andrews, from the 10th grade Great Works Project to the Creatori Literary Magazine, who is currently teaching honors and AP English to 10th through 12th grade students. Andrew has also been an important part of the CTTL Summer Science of Teaching and School Leadership Academy as a translation group leader, and he's helped to both write and pilot the CTTL's newest innovation in MBE translation, NeuroTeach Global. In Andrew's article, Breaking the Frozen Sea, Building Social Cognition Through Reading and Writing, in Volume 3 of Think Differently and Deeply, he shares the mind, brain, and education science behind why many middle and high school English teachers don't teach happy books, but rather texts that challenge students as they develop social cognitive skills. Uh, welcome, Andrew, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Well, thanks so much for having me, Glenn. You know, you've been now at St. Andrews for five full years. Mm-hmm. How has your thinking about teaching and learning changed by your training in mind, brain, education, science, your own facilitation of of MBE programs, Mm -hmm. um, and your connection with the CTTL over these years? Well, you know, I think that even before I got to St. Andrews, I was a psychology major. I've got a master's, um, and I I have an understanding of, you know, the way the brain functions. But actually getting in there in the classroom and having strategies in place and a way of thinking about how it might affect my teaching, that didn't happen before I think I got here. Uh, And the CTTL has been sort of instrumental in that in terms of what actually happens in the classroom changes brains effectively for educators. And it fills that gap between the research that sort of I was aware of before taking the job and the actual day-to-day practice in the classroom. So for that, it's been invaluable. Um, and the other thing is it's, it's given me a chance to work with terrific colleagues who have— You could say my name at any point All right, here. fine. Just it's it's Glenn Whitman. Yeah, I'm just yeah, going to okay, admit it. Yeah, it's Glenn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, lots of terrific colleagues <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, who, uh, who have like, you know, good strategies to offer. Um, and the way that we can collaborate and play off of one another's ideas and expand ideas and, and you know, offer criticism— um, you know, that's, it's a fantastic place to work because of that. And my thinking about what happens in the classroom has changed a lot on the basis of that as well. Andrews for five years. Yeah. When, how long have you been in this, in, in the teaching racket? How, how long oh, has man. Been? Wow. You're making me date myself oh, so, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. There's I, no video involved in this yeah, podcast. So you're no, good oh, good. All right. Here, my, my, my hair is slowly going. I have to count it that way. Uh, let's see here. It's been, uh, I spent two years in grad school, and I was teaching during that time. It was it was the type of program where you taught as well as um, you know taking classes, uh, and that was at Penn State. So that would have been let's see here, um, two years there, and then five years previous. So I think total something like this will be my thirteenth or fourteenth year as a teacher. Right. Yeah. So this this now just became an interdisciplinary podcast Ooh. between like English and math. So I just want to uh, <laughs> go on. Well, record. I'm really bad at one of those. So uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so I, I, I asked you to do that heavy thinking there um, because, you know, your article talks about, you know, elements of research, social cognition, mm-hmm. and even instructional variation um, quite a bit. But I'm curious, what other ways or what other strategies or approaches to teaching are you doing today that you weren't doing earlier in your career that have been informed by research you've been exposed to? Yeah, I think that I think a lot more than I did previously about things like um, active working memory, 
serial processing, um, saliency determination. And, and these might have been things that were you know, somewhat on my mind about teaching English uh, previously, but English is, is more than just sort of going in and talking about the book every day. It, it requires thinking deeply about what's important. What can I draw out of a large amount of information to make a particular argument or to make a particular analysis? Um, and those are types of skills that you know, rely on a knowledge uh, base of how memory works, uh, how, how attention works. And if you don't have the background there to sort of, you know, know the strategies that are most effective based on the research, it's hard to have kids write a decent essay or take a vocabulary quiz or remember information about a book, you know, months after reading it so that they can make connections to other works. So, you know, I think previous to this, it's a little bit like wandering blind through a maze. Like you sort of know what you want the outcome to be, but you, you, know, you need to have some kind of map or directions to help you get there. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm doing things all, uh, very differently, I think, in terms of the way I present information, the order in which I present it, how I teach kids to study for you know, the various types of assessments, how to prepare for tests or quizzes, but also outlines and essays. Right. Yeah. They might be actually reading more words sure. right, between <laughs> texting and digital devices. And is there, Are you seeing some difference also in just how kids are thinking about reading, uh, how pe kids are approaching reading, and maybe has this forced you actually how to how you teach reading? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been a, a lot of studies that have shown that, you know, in order to do kind of the deep processing, the, the deep reading that produces a fantastic analysis essay or a really good argument essay, or even just have a deep conversation in class, to do that kind of in-depth processing, you have to put the device down right. <laughs> at least <laughs> for a little while, right? Um, and that can be hard for certain students. And I, I know that St. Andrews made a, a new push here about limiting, you know, the hours of devices, at least while kids are on campus. But, you know, I have to sort of remind them as well that not all types of reading are equal. Right. Um, and I think what we're, we're getting really good at is, is scanning things or half reading things, even, right. even articles that are, you know, interesting and fascinating. If you read them on the device, I think like you're less likely to read them deeply than if there's a pen or paper in your hand, you're actually going through it. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. even in the uh, Sunday Times last week, Dan, Dan Willingham, who mm -hmm. is one of our podcasts and mm -hmm. was an Academy uh, deep dive presenter, really talks about this this difference and if uh, the importance of the printed uh, text versus the digital and what that means. Right. So I know we're all battling it and figuring it out. So <laughs> yeah. I just I'm, I know I'm supposed to talk about the article, but I no I, no that's already other yeah. topics I want to talk about. <laughs> Go for it. So so <laughs> here is you know you're a busy guy at the school. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, you know, when the opportunity availed itself from the center to write an article, hmm. uh, which would take, again, a little more of your time, you know, why did you choose to accept this this chance to write for volume three of Think Differently and Deeply? Oh, well, so the, the article's actually adapted from a talk that I gave, a, a chapel talk here at St. Andrews for Writer's Week. So Writer's Week is this uh, celebration that we have um, of, of all things writing, uh, which is really terrific. You know, I'm also the faculty proctor for Creaturi, the student fiction and visual arts magazine. And it's it was a good opportunity for me to sort of, you know, link these loves, these passions together in this talk. And I think that um, it is sort of an important topic. It, it is a question that I've gotten more than once from parents, you know, why aren't there happy books on right, the right. curriculum? <laughs> uh, and sometimes you get it from students too, right? Students read something and they come in the next day, they're like, oh, Mr. Seidman, this was such a downer, right? This was such a depressing thing. Why are you Why are you making us read this 
you know, particular thing. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that, you know, we do care about students' health and well-being and emotional well-being, et cetera. But it gave me an opportunity to justify this one particular practice of my teaching. And I think there is something valuable about this that needs to be communicated. So, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier just quickly, but for those who have not yet uh, read the article, who have a copy of this volume, and certainly they can get that through the center. We'll let the audience out there know uh, how to do that. You did talk about how a conversation with a parent sort of spurred <laughs> somewhat the, the concept of this article. So can, can you go yeah, back? I don't know. Sure. How, no, yeah, I'm not fine. asking you to get back in your time machine, yeah. but uh, can you uh, recreate that conversation with a parent? Because you mentioned something about happy books, but I, I don't think the audience knows necessarily Absolutely. why we re- reference that yet. Yeah. So this was uh, one of my first years teaching, you know, uh, high school. Sure. And um, I think the syllabus that year included things like um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I think uh, Macbeth was on there. I think Lord of the Flies. It was sort of your, you know, the, the types of books that you might imagine reading in a high school English curriculum. And we had parent-teacher conferences. And, you know, uh, it's a great opportunity to sit down with parents and, and let them know how students are doing and what sure. they could be doing better. And uh, we got to the end of this conference with this particular student. And I'll never forget um, this mom said, you know, Mr. Seidman, like our son loves your class. You know, he thinks you're funny. You know, he's learning a lot. His writing is improving. Um, But we had a question. Um, Do you have to assign so many downers? Like, is there a single happy book on your curriculum? (laughs) And it was a weird question, right? It was a question I I never sort of thought about. Like these, you know, these are the great works of literature I'm I'm, I'm presenting here. Um, Why aren't any of them happy? And is there a value to the fact that these works are not necessarily happy. Um, and, you know, if you, even if you think about books that are funny, right, that you might find in a, a college classroom, I think like, for example, Hamlet can be really, really funny. Catcher in the Rye is a very funny book at parts. Um, Catch 22 is a very funny book at parts. But they're, they're still not happy books when right. you think about them. Uh, and so it, it got me thinking, you know, is there a value in, in teaching this particular type of literature? And like so much of teaching, um, we do this thing for years and it turns out, yeah, actually, there is some research-informed strategies behind why we do this. Even if teachers don't know what those are, there's value to it. Right. So I have to ask, like, I, like you, when I was preparing for today, I, I had to go through my own sort of, you know, school reading. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I probably should be in counseling based upon <laughs> the, the unhappiness of the books. But what would actually be, qualify for a happy book? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure, uh, right? I'm a That's worried. a really good question, right? <laughs> so I, even even books that I think sort of you can make an argument do end happily. So like if you think about some of Shakespeare's comedies or things like that, right, where, you know, all the couples wind up getting married at the end or that kind of thing, there's always some nagging questions about, you know, who's the villain, right, right. Or, or what happens to that one person. We're reading Merchant of Venice right now with the 10th grade, sure. and Merchant of Venice is described as a comedy, I guess it meets the like the <laughs> classical definition of what a comedy is, right. right? In that it ends in marriage, et cetera. But I, you know, I, we we got to that final. We're almost at the end of the book now, and I was teaching it yesterday to the tenth graders, and we got to that scene where Shylock doesn't get the pound of flesh, um, and and just disappears pretty much from the play. There, I think his, his final line is something like, you know, you know, I am content, you know, but I I feel sick right now is basically what he says. So send me the contract I'm supposed to sign at home. I don't want to be here anymore. And he walks out. And, and I said to the students, that's the last time we see Shylock in the play. This look of devastation <laughs> entered all of their faces. Like they couldn't believe that that was the end, for that this character wouldn't receive some kind of happiness right. by the end of this thing. Um, and is, is there a value in that moment? You know, that's a comedy, right? Um, 
but yeah, there's value there. Right. Loosely defined comedy. Right. I guess that's right. right. Yeah. So so let's talk about the focus of the article. The the MBE research um, that you connect with the the power of reading unhappy books is this research around social cognition, mm-hmm. which is central actually to the the early training of a, a faculty member at St Andrews, mm-hmm. and we know is really critical that that teaching and learning is a social construct, and and engaging with literature is a social construct. So talk about that element of research that you really hold into to sort of validate yeah. your decision, and you know as we've sort of proven ourselves. Probably a lot of English departments read unhappy books, Mm -hmm. uh, but why that's such a critical way to connect the MBE around social cognition with the uh, literature you guys choose to read. I think that you know. To be fair, we're not con- we're not like sitting in the English English department every day consciously thinking towards those. What are the unhappiest books we can? No, teach, but right? you might have to start figuring out what your happy book is. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that uh, a couple of things are are good to think about here in terms of of what the research is showing us. The first thing is you know like so much of the other research in in MBE and in neuroscience, we're just now scratching the surface of sort of what happens in the brain when you are reading and when you are writing. And so this is exciting and new. We've known, I think, fairly recently that part of what happens when you read is that um, it's wakening up your neurons that deal with what we call embodied semantics. So that's the idea that about somebody performing a particular action there are parts of my brain that sort of wake up as if I was performing the action right. myself. Yeah, you had that uh, example about swimming. Right, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that actually comes from one of the the studies that uh, is you know footnoted in, in the article itself. Um, and, and that's fascinating and interesting. Um, I think what is more recent, what we're just sort of beginning to delve into here, is what's called um, the theory of the mind. So this is our ability as, as human beings to understand that our perspective and our rules and the way we sort of look at the world around us is not necessarily the same as somebody else's. Uh, I can't remember if it's uh, Vygotsky or uh, if it's one, of, it's one of the other stage theorists who, who describes this part of maturity as realizing that when you're sitting there blocking the TV – but you can see the TV perfectly, the person behind you can't. And the realization that they can't is part of theory of the mind, that you have to put yourself in their shoes in order to understand that your perspective is not their perspective. So the question that these um, researchers are are sort of trying to unpack is, does reading literature help with theory of the mind? Does it build theory of the mind? Because so much of the rest of social cognition, code switching and verbal pragmatics and, and working together in a team requires you to take on someone else's perspective, right? Requires that that basic idea of empathy. And what they found was that um, the very same sort of neurons that are might be responsible for our ideas about theory of the mind, yeah, they're lighting up. People are doing better when it comes to cognitive tests of theory of the mind and, and social tests of theory of the mind if they've read literature. And a lot of what good practice every day in the classroom when it comes to teaching literature is getting students to put themselves in the perspective of these fictional characters. And when they do that, there's that investment that comes because suddenly it's it's not just about these characters on the page. It's about them and their thoughts and their experience and perspective. And it, it opens up, I think, a wider world of, of perspectives for them. So if, you know, you didn't teach Merchant of Venice and you just said to students, if somebody made a contract and said, you know, I want a pound of your flesh if you don't pay back on time. Right, right. What, what would you say about that person? And, you know, students are going to say, well, they're a monster. They're horrible. I'd never agree to that right. contract. But when they read the words of Shylock, when they practice those words out loud, when they have to wrestle with them and unpack their meaning, suddenly that part of theory of the mind turns on. They're able to put themselves in a perspective that they were not able to do so before. And then the situation becomes 
wonderfully complicated. I know Ian, our head of research in the center, and myself, and certainly all of us, you know, we, we always return to Dan Willingham's quote of learning happens when you think hard. I mean, you're really right. making kids yes. think hard on this, right? I mean, yeah. so, so I'm going to have a selfish moment. I teach history, right? Mm-hmm. So I work, I like to work in the nonfiction space. Mm-hmm. Your article focuses <laughs> fiction. So, and, mo- and again, our English department, probably like a lot of English departments, reads much more fiction than nonfiction. Yeah. Is there a difference? Can, can can you? I would like to think you know we're serving both needs, but any any feelings about fiction versus nonfiction and achieving the social cognition, um, empathy that you are yeah. going after? So one of the studies that I linked to was talking about nonfiction and also talking about genre fiction. So they they tried to operationally define what literature is, and I can imagine that like there may have been some pushback here because not all nonfiction is the same either. You have narrative nonfiction and you have other types of nonfiction like instructional nonfiction. So the difference between, for example, reading an account of you know Christopher Columbus versus, for example. I don't know, instructions on how to bake cookies, right? So there's a difference between, you know, procedural fiction and nonfiction and so on and so forth here. I'm not sure um, if a study has been run yet to kind of compare the two. And, I, you know, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but I would suspect that narrative nonfiction probably achieves a lot of the same goals in terms of social cognition and, and theory of the mind that, you know, fiction does. And not all fiction is equal either, right? I think one of the things that this study showed was that if characters aren't well-rounded, um, if it doesn't require deep processing or, as, as you just put it, like thinking hard, um, you might not achieve the same effects. Right. So, yeah. No, no, that's great. Well, let's, uh, we, will, we will keep keep yeah. comparing notes on this. History uh, has a place here. Thank I don't want, you. I, don't want uh, I, I want some job security. <laughs> I mean, you're killing me. Um, you know, an, an interesting uh, – another element of your article, which I joined to the last third, was the varied ways you then gave students sort of – not necessarily choice, but – uh, assignments, mm-hmm. did they get it? Yeah. You know, assignments that would nurture their sort of empathy or, or, or demonstrate that they gain empathy. Can you talk about the instructional variation that you bring in to try to, I wouldn't say measure, but to get kids to sort of write or extrapolate on their reading? Yeah, absolutely. There was a time, you know, before actually coming here where I would have said that, you know, all assessments in English class need to be essays, right. either analysis essays or argument essays. And you read a book, you write an essay. You read a book, you write an essay. And and that's that's just not good teaching, I think, <laughs> fundamentally. So, uh, you know, there are uh, questions about, you know, how can they demonstrate this newfound empathy from reading the book? Um, and so uh, assignments like having students have to perform a monologue as one of the characters. Okay. Uh, we did this for a book called um, The God of Small Things uh, by Arun Hati Roy, um, which is a really you know good book. It is also a pretty depressing book. Right. And so. <laughs> different characters um, are culpable, I guess. You can make an argument are, are culpable for what happens at the end of this book. So one of the assessments there was take on the voice of one of the characters of the book and perform this monologue saying that you're not responsible for this, that you're not culpable. And it was surprisingly moving what they came up with and how well they were able to sort of echo the voice and the perspective of Roy's characters. Um, and, you know, yeah, I was I was looking for other things like were they using certain poetic devices and, and, and certain rhetorical strategies, but also it was a great test of 
how well they were able to take on the perspective and understand the issues that motivated these characters. Um, we do something similar, actually, for Merchant of Venice. Uh, students get to write a speech in the style of Shylock's famous I am a Jew speech. And it can be from their perspective. It can be, you know, I am a teenager or I am a student. Um, but we also open it up for them to sort of keep going with that theory of the mind. So take on the perspective of someone who isn't Shylock, but who also isn't you. So, you know, uh, I am a refugee. Uh, I am a factory worker. And you get silly ones and funny ones also in there, too. There's a moment of, of happiness in, in this other thing. I, I got one a few years ago that was, I am Kim Kardashian, oh. which was hilarious. <laughs> uh, I've gotten one, I am Mr. Sideman, uh, which is, yeah, brilliant. I hope we right? kept that one. <laughs> we definitely did. Uh, yeah. And I think that... Um, Finding new and creative ways of assessing this particular skill is important because you do want to be teaching this. Um, part of being, I think, a good teacher is creating good citizens, and good citizens are citizens who have empathy. Yep. So, so let's talk a little more about the assignment. can't be easy. I mean, it must be some challenge. Some kids might jump into it and get it. <laughs> And, and go quickly. Yeah, uh, you know the the the, the variation uh, as people sort of grapple mm -hmm. with these themes, emotions, and uh, so I'm curious to know what does it take for you to sort of personalize or scaffold your support of students who might be doing great and just you can let them run. Sure, but you need to support a student to sort of get into this form of expression that's not the traditional essay Absolutely. Or, or analytic essay. Yeah. So I think that two things sort of have to happen. The first is if the student didn't understand the text in the first place, obviously they are going to have a lot more trouble taking on the perspective of the characters. Sure. So you do, particularly for, you know, works of Shakespeare or, or older works, you do have to sort of scaffold in things like vocabulary, um, you know, this, the types of assessments and, and, and homework assignments and, and things that you would imagine most traditional English teachers hopefully are, are doing um, to check for understanding, reading checks and, and that kind of thing. But you also need to slowly open up space in class for things like discussions and debate. You know, for many students, you can't just assume they know how to do that right off the bat. Um, uh, you know, this is the difference between sort of passive learning and active learning, sure. right? So you've got to build up to that. And that might happen with, you know, uh, scaffolded assignments like fishbowl discussions right. um, or coming in with one or two questions or points that you need to make in class each day and then building up to something more like, okay, now instead of just you making your own point, you have to respond to someone else's point in class that right. day. Building in slowly scaffolding assignments like that so that they feel more comfortable sharing their own perspectives, but also listening to other people's perspectives, that gets them in a space where they're ready to then embody someone else's position or perspective, et cetera. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great. It's a, again, there's, you know, you teach classes, probably, you know, 15 students, maybe 18 mm -hmm. students. And, yep. you know, I, one thing I have learned is there's 15 or 18 very different people, brains, <laughs> right. identities in each of our classes, right? And, and, and you do have to respect that, right? right? So some students, you can throw that poem assignment at them right away and they, they get it instantly. Right. But there are others that you're right, you do have to sort of scaffold up slowly before they're able to do something like yeah. that. Yeah. The, the, one, uh, the one challenge uh, that we have as a center, as both as teachers, is measurement. Mm -hmm. You're very intentional about uh, selecting the literature you're going to use um, and the research that's informing that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, how do you know? You know, you're not out in front of that class collecting quantitative and qualitative no. data all the time. Yeah. But how do you know it's moving the empathy needle or the social cognition needle? <laughs> it's one of the great challenges in the work of the CTTL and as well as as teachers try to use research to inform their practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, to figure out what's the right strategy for their kids, for their class, their age group. So 
How do you know if this is working? That's a really good question. Sorry, I want to give the big one <laughs> yeah, towards wow. the end. You're, yeah. you're, you're throwing me the curveballs here. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a, it's a really good question because you're right. Unlike something that would be easier to operationally define, like, I don't know, vocabulary or something sure. like that, it would be much easier to sort of know whether students were retaining that type of memory. It's much harder to define something like empathy. And, and unlike, you know, the – Researchers at universities, I don't have an fMRI machine to sort of watch those changes not yet. happening. Not yet. Not <laughs> oh, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next big donation here, if you're listening. Uh, there you go. We'll take your old fMRI. Uh, but no, uh, I think that um, this is this is harder to get to. Um, and it would be interesting, I think, for me to run some kind of study just in my classroom alone trying to get at this. I, I could probably find you know some tools online that psychologists actually use to see whether – social cognition is improving or not. Right. But I think we see it in other ways in the classroom also. Um, so one thing that we talk a lot about with social cognition practically is just the ability to work with other people, right? So when you talk about verbal pragmatics or you talk about you know self-marketing, um, which are social cognitive skills, a lot of that comes into play when you assign students group projects. And how well are they sort of getting along together? How well are they meeting goals? How well are they compensating for one another's strengths or weaknesses? I would guess that if I sort of watch that a little bit more closely in terms of, you know, our ability of students to read and understand literature, you might see some some effects happening in terms of their ease with that type of a project sure. um, and how well they're, they're, they're doing it together. Um, I haven't I haven't actually looked at that yet, but I, that that could be really fascinating. No, I'm just saying. Yeah. I, you know, I imagine uh, there's empathy scales. There's you know there, there must be some oh, sure. tested pressure tested uh, scales. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd, it'd be interesting, right? Because I know there's this intuitively we like to believe it's impacting, but how do we be more intentional around it? It might right. be a nice research project. Uh, down the road. Yeah. Well, I uh, I've really enjoyed our time together, but I do have one last question. Yeah. Um, the title is interesting. <laughs> Because, and 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 just so you know, you answer why you chose this title at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, but just in case somebody does not get the printed version or the virtual version in hand, uh, you title this "Breaking the Frozen Sea: Building Social Cognition Through Reading and Writing." Let's talk about the first part of the title. Where yeah. did the "Breaking the Frozen Sea" come from? I wish I could take credit for this uh, and say I am well read enough that I remember a brilliant line like that. But in fact, I have to give credit to my colleague here, the the brilliant Morgan Evans, uh, <laughs> so who's also in the English department. It is truly you are a, not the first to cite Morgan in a podcast. I <laughs> oh, there you go. He, he is a master teacher. If you don't get him on this, I, I, I you know you, you got to get him. We on do. This. He, he wrote for the uh, for the issue as well. Yeah, he, he's oh, on our list. He's terrific. Um, so Morgan remembers a line like no one else I know. He can quote whole passages from literature. And he, you know, he read my chapel talk, my initial draft, and he said, what you're talking about is what Franz Kafka talked about. He said, um, literature is the axe to break the frozen sea within us, um, which I think, oh, it was just such a good line, Kafka. Way to go. Uh, <laughs> Kafka, who wrote a lot of unhappy literature. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, that is sort of what we're getting at here, that your students, and all of us really, you know, if, if we don't tap into that social cognition, if we don't tap into that theory of the mind, if we don't break that frozen sea within us, it, it, it remains frozen. And literature is a fantastic axe to, to cut away at that, to get that scene moving again, and to discover how it moves and where it moves and, and the ways it moves. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it was just a sort of perfect title there. It's not my, I can't give full credit for it though. Morgan Evans, yeah. 
and Kafka. Let's give some credit for Kafka, too. Well, well, both of those have good street <laughs> cred, and, and more importantly, I think that's like the great story to end this podcast. So, uh, Andrew, one is you, you know I'm a huge fan, and I, I thank you uh, for your dedication to our students every day and the joy and happiness you exude <laughs> for not only uh, teaching English, but being our colleague. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank was, you. Awesome. Thanks. At St. Andrews, we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket or active retrieval of information that was a focal point of the day's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. So in that research-informed spirit, here's your exit ticket. What book from your high school literature class helped teach you empathy? And while you're at it, let us know of a happy book you have read. Tweet your response to at the CTTL. We look forward to seeing what you come up with. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. Each podcast is produced by Kirsten Peterson and mixed by Jordan Yachts. Jordan also composed our theme music, which we lovingly call The Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. This act of reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.